We bow before you, God, of heaven and earth and of this snowstorm that we find ourselves in, Lord. It's not an accident. You've given it to us, God. We're thankful for we need the snow. We've been pretty dry this winter in Colorado, Lord. We need the moisture. We need the runoff in the spring, God. We're thankful also, Lord, for the power you've given us and the heat, electricity, and that we can continue to worship you together, although far apart. We thank you, Lord, for the technology that we have to do these things. We pray, God, for our health, that we will stay healthy and warm and safe, God. We pray certainly for those who have chronic ailments in our church, God, who struggle with, perhaps with uh, new difficulties in their body, Lord, of late, that you would be with them, that you would help them uh, find the solution to the problem, Lord, give them a good doctor, give them patience and perseverance, Lord, where it's very hard, uh, especially uh, older age. And we ask, God, that we would encourage one another in these regards and to be helpful when we can, pray for one another for our bodies, especially pray for our souls, Lord, uh, that we would grow in sanctification and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to read your word, to pray before you, God, to become more holy. That is our desire, God. And although, although this outward man fails and falls apart, Lord, we pray for the inward man to be strong and to be renewed by your spirit, and to long for the day of the resurrection for a better body. We pray, God, for uh, laws and leaders, Lord, that would do the right thing and not do the wrong thing, not to undermine uh, the traditions and the history that we have in this nation that's not contrary to the Word of God. We have much of that. We pray, Lord, that in particular laws that we've heard of, of late in Colorado uh, would be overthrown, uh, laws that would, again, undermine our basic uh, freedoms that our forefathers established for us and our each succeeding generation, Lord, and that we would safeguard those things, especially for the sake of our families and our church, Lord. And may things go back to normal quickly, God. May you move the heart of the governor to do the right thing uh, and <clears throat> give him access uh, to the things he needs to protect those he's really concerned about, such as his aged parents, Lord. Uh, they would be given basic functions we should have had over a year ago. Uh, more, the president could have commandeered more factories or, I don't know, the state powers, Lord, and local powers to be. Uh, but God, and that the manufacturing companies such as 3M and Honeywell and others, Lord, uh, would have their hearts moved to take care of their fellow men locally first before they try to make much a bunch of money internationally, God. That uh, we would have more such proper affections towards those who are close to us, and we would reprioritize our love, Lord, if we are, have been distracted otherwise. We pray, God, for this nation, for her repentance, and for the purity of the church. In your name alone we pray. Amen. We are in First Peter, First Peter one ten through twelve. First Peter one ten through twelve. And so Paul starts there. Peter, Peter starts out here in his uh, letter to the pilgrims of the diaspora and Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, which is to say. Uh, large swaths of Turkey, the west and south side. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, sanctified of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkled by the blood of Christ. He gives a triune blessing, and we had a number of sermons uh, on that, and he continues on here. Blessing God and Father who has given us much grace and mercy and a resurrection and inheritance incorruptible of a new body and the fullness of salvation in the next few verses. <clears throat> and then uh, he mentions... Uh, the blessedness that we have, that we rejoice greatly in this future salvation to be revealed in its time, even though for a little while we have been grieved by various trials, and we may have brothers and sisters in Fort Collins right now being grieved by the trial of no electricity. And so we ought to 
continue to pray for them and ask that they would have the help that they need. And in spite of that, whom we, whom we have not seen, we love, that is Jesus Christ, again rejoicing in the joy of the salvation yet to be revealed. And here, he unpacks the idea of the salvation in verses 10 through 12. Let us listen attentively to the word of God. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the suffering of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that, not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Let us pray. With these glorious words, God, we're reminded of the prophecies of the Old Testament and how they've been fulfilled in the New Testament, how you sent the pastors, Lord, and the apostles to the fathers. Help us, Lord, to be encouraged thereby, how the promises fulfilled and still yet to be fulfilled, that is, the second coming of Christ, God, and how we can rejoice in that as well. In your name alone we pray. Amen. We live in a world that denies the supernatural even as they crave the supernatural. Religion is not dead in America, to be sure. It's just more pagan and more secular. The atheists have not won in that regard. That means the prophecies of the Old Testament may still be taken seriously by our neighbors or co-workers, mostly because they're just ignorant. So much ignorance about Christianity, it's astounding. We can help instruct them in this matter. And this sermon can help with that by pointing to the prophecies and the fulfillment of those prophecies in the New Testament books. This sermon can also help us with respect to encouraging our faith. Going over again the prophecies of our Lord and Savior will remind us of his love for us. They did happen, they did occur, and that he is not finished saving us. So let's look more carefully in these texts. And we're essentially going to have it broken down into two parts. That is the Old Testament prophecies and the New Testament fulfillment. The first point, the Old Testament prophecies. Inquired, or looking into, right? Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully. The Old Testament prophets wanted to know more about the things they had prophesied. Just because the Spirit moved through them, and they spoke uh, on parables and metaphors and stories and just straight-out prophecies, doesn't mean they understood exactly what they were saying. To the law, that is the Torah, and the testimonies, that they speak not according to this word, surely there's no mourning for them, Isaiah 8.20. The law of God is what we are supposed to go to, and that includes the prophecies. We should examine them for our encouragement, to see if any of them, as we know in particular, are still yet to be fulfilled in the second coming of Christ. Daniel 9.2 we read, for example, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books of the number of the years specified by the words of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet. He was meditating upon the Bible, he was meditating upon the prophecies, especially Jeremiah, and he understood by the books of the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish seven years in the desolations of Jerusalem. And so we have a specific example here of Daniel himself going and inquiring of the things of the Lord. Perhaps we hadn't thought about that. Again, the prophets weren't all knowing. They just had the Spirit, and the Spirit gave them what he wanted to give them in terms of knowledge. And even then, 
They can have the Bible before them. We've certainly done this. I've certainly done this. You read it, and you're like, Lord, I can't understand exactly what I'm reading here. <laughs> That's what the eunuch said to Philip. They were on the road to Damascus in Acts 7. How can I understand unless someone explained it to me? And the prophets wanted someone to explain it to them. We're called, as they are called of old, to inquire of the Lord. Acts 17.11 These were far, uh, far more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness, and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. And so in the New Testament era, we too are supposed to dig into the word of God. It may not be prophecy. And as a matter of fact, you see, much of the New Testament isn't prophecy. A lot of the Old Testament is prophecy. But wherever we have the Word of God, we ought to inquire of the Word of God to better understand and to better know the importance of this salvation. Of this salvation, verse 10, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully. Searching what? Or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating that he testified beforehand. They wanted to know the what and the where and the when and who, all the details of the prophecy, not just how it is encouraging that God is really going to save them. That's true, and they inquired into that as well, I'm sure. But here in particular, they were searching the what or what manner of time Christ would come, the suffering and what that entailed, the specifics of the future. Whereas we, as I said, we don't have much of that except for a few here and there, such as in Peter, and of course the book of Revelation, and the promise of Christ coming again the second time. We don't have much to inquire of what or what manner, but we should and can to the extent that we are able to look into these things and have friendly debates as we have over what they call eschatology or the doctrine of end times, what's going to happen at the end of all time. What are the signs, and how much more is yet to be fulfilled? Uh, these are, in many ways, good debates, uh, healthy debates, and proper debates. Uh, but again, we don't have much to go on, so we should be especially too dogmatic, I believe. And certainly we can not only examine the what and who of the future as best we can, but in particular, just the salvation, the idea of salvation, and what it means to be saved, and what this redemption is that we have in Christ Jesus of the grace to come. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied. What did they prophesy? Of the grace that would come, that is, of salvation, broadly. And, of course, Christ in particular, as it mentions here, of the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow, verse 11. Christ is the embodiment of the grace that we have, the salvation that we have, the redemption that we have. And they prophesied of that, and they inquired of that, not just of the future, but what exactly does it mean he's going to save us? How is he going to save us? Not just when is he going to save us. What is this salvation that we have fully in him? They have much of that, of course, to be sure, as we will see in the Old Testament. They weren't completely ignorant. They knew enough to be saved. Praise the Lord. The idea of grace, or the word here, grace, prophesied of the grace, in verse 10, is, I take it to be a shorthand for all the parts of salvation, of the New Testament era, of Christ's incarnation, of his life, of his death, of his ascension, of his resurrection and exaltation, of our calling, justification, sanctification, adoption, glorification, all of that is grace, and grace more abundant. Grace through the church officers, of the church members, of the New Testament church era, of the Word of God, of the Bible, who prophesied of the grace that would come, is not just Christ narrowly conceived as a second member of the Trinity, becoming man. There you go. No, he lived and died. And he procured 
salvation for us in that procurement, all the things that he got for us, is also involved in grace. So you can say, prophesy out of the grace that would come and say, well, that's Christ, but it's not just Christ, it's all the things that Christ has done and will do for us as well, for it is all of grace. Then it mentions in verse 11, the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified before him. What was the Spirit of Christ who was in them indicating? What was he pointing to? What manner? And what? And the how? And the who specifically? The Spirit of Christ, or the Spirit of prophecy, points to the closeness of the Holy Spirit and the function of deliverance for us with Christ himself. It is Christ and is the Spirit of Christ. That is, the Spirit points to Christ through the prophecies. That is part of his job. In John 16, 13, we read, However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. It is the Spirit, brothers and sisters, that in particular gives us revelation and knowledge about Christ. Through the Old Testament prophecies, through the New Testament writings themselves. So he has an important function in our salvation, in the grace that would come to us. Inwardly, being born again, is the power of the Holy Spirit. That certainly brings us grace, that brings us illumination and truth of Jesus Christ. Outwardly, that is accomplished or accompanied by, in particular, the preaching and the Bible reading and the like, as the Spirit pleases. The Spirit is a guarantee of our salvation, in particular, Ephesians 1.14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. The Spirit is given to us by Christ as a down payment for the fullness of the salvation that is yet to fully come. And thus we rejoice, as Peter mentioned several times in the verses before. We rejoice in the salvation to come because we see it, because we have the Spirit within us, and therefore we understand and therefore we believe. But, particularly the Spirit of Christ, the close attachment to the two in our salvation, is with respect to revelation. The Spirit of Christ who was in them indicating or pointing to the sufferings of Christ. In 2 Peter one twenty one, we read, For prophecy never came by the will of man, but by holy men of God, spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Moved by the Holy Spirit. So you can say it's the spirit of prophecy as well. And as saying it's the spirit of Christ. The Old Testament and the New Testament books were written by holy men of God who were moved by the Spirit to write those very words. God, the Holy Spirit, used men and the words of men to convey divine truth. What that means in a twofold manner is that these are holy books and we should not play around with them, we should not play games with them, we should take them seriously as letters from God given to us, like we would take the letters of our parents if we were on a far away lost desert island, uh, or our grandparents and cherish them and read about them and the lessons we can learn from them, all the more with the word of God that we have here. But in being divine, we must not forget that God in his grace came down to our level and wrote it in human words with human figures of speech so that the average person can read them and understand them. We can read these words and say, oh, of this salvation the prophets have inquired. What does that mean? Well, it means they looked into salvation. They searched carefully. I don't have to have 
a special movement of the Spirit to understand the very words I am reading here. All I need is the common sense human language skills God has given me. Unbelievers can read the Bible and know what it says and just say, I don't, I don't agree with it. I don't believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I've read some of that stuff before. They're like, this. that's what the Bible says. Christians should be playing around with the Bible. I'm telling you this is what it, what it says. I just don't believe it. The Bible is that clear. We must not forget that. The people, of course, will lie about it and play games because there's lots of wolves. We're warned in the Bible very clearly to be careful of wolves in sheep clothing. That could be in the leadership, but not necessarily in the leadership. Just somebody with influence and power in Christian circles or upon Christian circles lying about the Word of God. The Bible is very clear. We have much agreement. That's why we can write confessions and have creeds over the centuries of Christianity because the revelation given to us by the Spirit of Christ indicating and pointing to is a clear revelation. A divine revelation that uses ordinary, everyday speech, human speech. But of course, we need the Spirit to open our hearts and their hearts to accept it. And praise be to God, He has opened our hearts. Now, the prophecy, the prophecies given of the Old Testament, the Spirit of Christ who was in them indicating when He testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ, the glories of Him, that it was revealed verse 12, to themselves, but to us, ministering the things that have been reported to you, and the like. What are these prophecies in particular? Of Christ, of his sufferings, of what manner of time, of salvation, of grace? These are the things that are prophesied here. First of all, prophecy was all over the Old Testament, as I pointed out before. We know that. You've read large parts of the Bible. Hopefully you're trying to read the entire Bible at least once in your life. There are, depending on how you count and add them together, uh, right? So the verses or one verse that has five or six specific details in those verses. Do you count the details? Do you count the verses? How do you count prophecy? Uh, by one count, there are over 350 prophecies in the Old Testament. From Genesis to Malachi. Almost every book of the Bible. In the historical books of Numbers and Chronicles, where you wouldn't think there'd be prophecies, to the poetry of the Psalms, and of course, the prophecies themselves. Even the wisdom literature of Proverbs has a few pointers to the future and who Christ is, perhaps. The Psalms, in particular, have many, many prophecies. But it's Isaiah, it looks like, from the Counts, that has the most, with almost 100 prophecies of the New Testament era and of Christ. Now, so I said, how do you, how you count prophecy? The temple system itself prophesies of Christ, doesn't it? <laughs> so every day they had a priest out there sacrificing an animal, shedding the blood, bringing on the offering. He had a prophecy of Christ coming and dying for his people. And not just Christ coming and dying for his people, but Christ as their priest who is offering up himself to heaven. And Christ is the temple, Christ said. I am the presence of God. The entirety of it are living prophecies of Christ, his person and his work. The temple, the priests, the animals, all are Christ and what he has done. So, even without the prophecies as such, they had the prophecies in everyday life when they went to worship. Remember, the Old Testament wasn't completed. Many parts of the books, so here they are in Deuteronomy and the like at that time, the 1200s with Moses, 1100s, 900s with David. They didn't have other books of the Bible like we have in the Old Testament. They had mostly the ceremonial system to point to the future of Christ coming to redeem them. So uh, that is also part of the prophecies of old in which you would see not just the prophets, but the everyday Jew 
watching and trying to figure out well, how exactly is this going to work out? How can how can my deliverer be the priest, be the animal, and, and maybe be the temple? How's, what is going on here? And so they inquire and ask as well, I believe, not just the prophets themselves. In particular, the point of the prophecies that he's highlighting here is of salvation, is of salvation or grace of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, diligently. <clears throat> Part of that picture of salvation deliverance, we read in Isaiah 42.6, for example. In Isaiah 42.6, we read, I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness, and will hold thine hand, and will keep thee, and give thee for a covenant for the people, for a light of the Gentiles. You have a number of prophecies in the Old Testament referencing the Gentiles. In fact, making them God's people, as we read in Zechariah and Malachi. A little, little word. And of course, we know in the time of Christ, they didn't quite get it. They still thought, oh, well, that means the Gentiles have become Jews like us. But no, when you go back and read those again, you're like, uh, you realize, uh, yeah, no, what's happening here is <laughs> they're a new people of God. We read in Zechariah, for example. A new people of God. I will make them my people who are no longer, who were never my people. What? That's what's going on here. And so the picture of salvation isn't just narrowly your salvation because Christ saves you. It's certainly there as well. But also broadly, the difference in the church constitution that is what constitutes or makes up the church in the Old Testament New Testament. The Old Testament was primarily Jewish. Not exclusively Jewish biologically because you didn't have to be a biological Jew to join the church. We know that for Caleb and others and Rahab. But mostly, or predominantly, we would say. In the New Testament area, you find out... <laughs> Everyone with their mom. All these Gentiles, and in fact, it seems almost the opposite. It seems like there's not a lot of Jews that were saved. And many Jews were judged, as we know in the fall of Jerusalem, 70 AD. But here, he mentions salvation broadly, and we know that it affects this salvation, the makeup of the church in the New Testament era. But he focuses in particular upon Christ, his sufferings and his glories in verse 11. It's Christ and his work for us, because the basis of that is also the reason why the church changes. So you get to the root of the matter, which is Christ. And everything flows from that when it comes to redemption and the changes between the two testaments. His incarnation, his life, his suffering, his death, his glory, and the implications, what flows from that. Justification, sanctification, adoption, glorification, and heaven. It's a lot of things, in fact. And that's why you have a large Bible. <laughs> A lot of things being covered there. So that's the prophecies of the Old Testament. I'm not going to go through every single one of them, obviously. 350, however many you want to count, would take hours and hours. Instead, I give you the overview, the broad overview, and now talking about the second point, the New Testament fulfillment. Old Testament promises, New Testament fulfillment. The Holy Spirit was sent. We read here in particular, to them it was revealed, that is the prophets, that not to themselves, not to the prophets, but to us, we believers today, in the time of Peter, and of course today in this blizzard, they, the prophets, were ministering the things which now have been reported to you. What has been reported to you? Preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit. They knew that their words of prophecy were mostly for the future and for us of the future. That they were ministering or serving or helping and encouraging. They knew that was their job. Can you imagine how hard that would be? That the words you speak will fall on deaf ears like it did for Jeremiah and Isaiah, and they hated them, they yelled at them, they threw them in the pits, they tried to kill them. But they persevered because they knew it was not for themselves, but it was for us. 
that they gave these words and they persevered because of that. They looked to the future and they looked to the future of hope. And we ought to follow that example. The Spirit, we read in particular here, the Spirit sent from heaven to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. The Spirit sent from heaven and it's through him that the preaching of the gospel has been given to us. That is, the Spirit is behind the preaching and the preachers and the prophets of old and in the New Testament era and the apostles in particular. And it is the preaching you read here in particular, uh, reported to you through those who have preached. It's a primary instrument of revelation uh, for many people in the Old Testament. The preaching was done through the prophets. That is, they were out there telling the truths of God's word, not just of the future, that's foretelling, but of the law of God and how it applies to them now. That's foretelling. Telling, excuse me, forth telling, to tell forth the application of God's law. It is that latter function, in particular, forth telling. And that is the idea of preaching that we understand it today. They preached of old, and there's preaching going on today. We read here, reported to you through those who preach, who have preached the gospel, given to them by the Holy Spirit. They've been anointed by the Holy Spirit. It is a primary instrument of revelation for many, many people who don't have the Bible. They hear a pastor first, a preacher first. Maybe you points them to a preacher as well. Conversion accompanies preaching often, we read in the Apostles, and the book of, book of the Apostles of Acts. And of course, it's comfort for the saints to hear the pastors preach as we expound the Word of God for their edification. The preachers, of course, must preach Christ and the Bible. They didn't come to preach anything in general, but to preach the good news, the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit, and all the implications of the gospel, and various other uh, aspects uh, of the law of God in particular. We know it's not just only the gospel. He didn't say to those who have preached only the gospel to you. He could have written that, but he preached the gospel, yes, because Paul mentions the law. He tells you how to live as a Christian, as a mother, as a father, as a husband, as a wife. That is not narrowly the, the good news, because the good news is you're saved, in spite of how bad of a mother you are, right? Uh, that's more properly the law. And so that is part of the broader idea of the gospel dispensation, just as a reminder uh, that this text isn't saying only preach the gospel, no other way to speak, in which case Paul and even Jesus uh, would have been in violation of this. That is certainly not the case. But that is a primary and important highlight, a function. We are ministers of the good news. We ought to preach the good news and encourage people and warn them, of course, of rejecting the good news. And this is how many people have been saved and how we've been saved. To us, they were ministering these things. The prophets were ministering to us, serving us today, although way in the past, which have now been reported to you. What? Those things that they have done, that they preached on. What, what did they preach on? He's saying they preached on the gospel. We have preached the gospel to you. They preached the gospel in Old Testament form and language and imagery, but it's the same substance, the same reality, that it's Christ Jesus. We see it clearly, they didn't see it clearly, but we can see the gospel in the Old Testament. That's what this text is saying, but to us they were ministering what? The things which now have been reported to you. What things have been reported to us? Through those who have preached the gospel. That's the what. It's not just interesting prophecies being fulfilled in the Old Testament, but they were prophesying of the gospel, of the fullness of the gospel, because they certainly had it, because they believed in what they saw to come. We believe in things that have already come. And it's, of course, been fulfilled. It's been fulfilled in Christ Jesus. Christ, in general... We have prophecies that are very broad in Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. 
And we read in Galatians 3.16, Now to Abraham and his seed where the promise is made. He does not say intercedes as of many, we would say plural, but as of one, and to your seed, singular, who is Christ. Paul said, look, wherever you see these prophecies of old, like Genesis 3.15, put the enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, he's saying Christ. Christ is the seed, singular. And we also read in Romans 16.20, And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. Where did that come from? Satan's going to be bruised under our feet. That is, we're going to be trampling him down with our feet. Well, Genesis 3.15, I'll put enmity between you, and he shall bruise your head. That is, Satan will bruise the... uh, He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Excuse me. He, Christ, shall bruise the head of Satan, and you shall bruise his heel. That is, Satan shall bruise the heel of Christ. It's a small wound that Christ took when he died, wasn't it? We don't think of it that way. You crush the head of the serpent. Your heel might get bruised because you're hitting a big serpent. You're hitting it hard. It's a minor inconvenience. Christ dying because he's the son of God. (laughs) What's a minor inconvenience in that sense? He was divine. He knew he was going to overcome it. And yet, when he crushed Satan, Satan's head is crushed. The body part is most significant, isn't it? His head was crushed. His power is destroyed. Although he thought he wounded Christ, or wounds the body, as we see today, he thinks he wounds us, he does not. Christ has conquered him and crushed him, and we conquer and crush through Christ. And so the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. It wasn't just Christ. We have victory through Christ. We are identified in Christ. And so he can apply Genesis 3.15 to the bruising of the serpent's head to us bruising the serpent's head under our feet because we have victory in Christ as that serpent. Well, it's a broad prophecy. It's not very particular and detailed. We do have more details as time goes by in the Old Testament and the fulfillments in the New Testament of his suffering in particular. And the great passage, as we all know, is Isaiah 53. Lots of details there in Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 6. Later on, several hundred years later, he comes along and he gives by the power of the Spirit these prophecies which are fulfilled in the New Testament. Who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall... Grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. That is, people didn't want him. That's the point. Not that he's ugly. The emphasis here is no one wants him. They reject him. And as we know, Christ was not well received later on in his ministry, and he was rejected even by his own disciples. He was despised and rejected of men. Verse 3, that's the emphasis. A man of sorrow is acquainted with grief and was hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. We, he says, did not esteem him. Everyone hated Christ. Surely he was born our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And we read, of course, Christ saying, My God, why have you forsaken me? One sentence after another, one verse after another, we see fulfilled in the New Testament. He was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. He was literally beaten and whipped. All we like have sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone his own way. Peter forsook him. He was opposed, verse 7, oppressed, and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before the, its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Christ didn't push back against the kangaroo court. You ever notice that? He gave short little answers, and sometimes he didn't speak at all. He was willing to go the whole way, and he fulfilled this prophecy to a T. Sufferings of Christ. 
but not just the sufferings, the great salvation that flowed from it, as we know, to the temple system, the ceremonial system, uh, the sacrifices, the Passover, now the blood shall be a sign for you between your houses where you are. When you see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you. And we know, of course, that's fulfilled in the New Testament era. Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Yet another prophecy, in this case, the ceremonial system of the Passover, points to Jesus Christ with a fair amount of detail of the blood, of the suffering, and of the salvation that comes, and the broadest sweep of salvation, that the New Testament era would be a new dawn. There would be so much grace, it's like a whole new world to them. And so we read in Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who will bless you, he tells Abraham, and I will curse him who curses you, and you, all the families of the earth, shall be blessed. And you, all the families of the earth, we are of multiple families, aren't we? Of the healing of the nations, we read in Revelation 21. Because we have different ancestors. That's what gives some diversity to the human oneness that we have in Adam. It's a fair amount of diversity, praise be to God. And all that diversity are the language of the Bible. Families of the earth shall be blessed. And we read in Galatians 3, And for the scriptures, for seeing that God would justify the Gentiles, by faith preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, And you all the nations shall be blessed. Paul says, when it says, in you all the nations shall be blessed, that is not some simplistic, materialistic blessing, although that has that that does occur in God's providence. That's not the point of the prophecy, though. It's to bring the gospel. He preached the gospel beforehand in that language of all the nations shall be blessed. And it's the Gentiles, the nations of the Gentiles, the many families of the Gentiles. You and I, brothers and sisters, are a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Today, here in Colorado, in the middle of a blizzard, they had blizzards back in the time of David in Colorado, although there was no Colorado and probably just Indians if there was anybody here back then. And they had no idea, David, I think, didn't fully grasp this, that we today would not be in Israel right now, in the Middle East, but over here, comfortable and just fine, not worshiping in Jerusalem, because God tells us not to anymore. We don't have to. That's who they were prophesying to, us. We are fulfillment of Genesis 12, 3. The families of the earth shall be blessed. We are blessed. We are different families, and we are blessed indeed. And this, of course, points to the greatness of our Lord and Savior. It is grace, all of grace, prophesied of grace, that would come to you, he says in verse 10, to us and to you this very day. Rejoice, brothers and sisters, in your salvation. Meditate upon the prophecies to build up your faith and stand firm in the love of Christ for us. Let us pray. We thank you, God, for these words that Peter almost mentions in passing, but he put a lot of detail here, God, for he himself witnesses and saw, he knew the Old Testament and saw, or how Christ fulfilled one passage after another in his ministry and his work and his life and his death, and even in the formation of the New Testament era on church. We thank you, God, that we have been blessed indeed, and that, Lord, you raised up these godly men of the Old Testament, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Malachi, Zechariah, Zephaniah, Bacchic, all of them, Lord, who put, went through so much suffering for us. It was revealed, not for their own purposes, Lord, but revealed that to us they were ministering these things. And we've been ministered indeed, Lord, and served this day. We praise you, God, and thank you, amen.